the Christmas season is all about symbols. And because symbols have different meanings to different people, they need to be interpreted. The weeks before Christmas often feel like an endless stream of arguments over what these symbols mean and who they belong to. Most of these arguments tend to be pretty self-serving and rather pointless. The annual hand-wringing over whether Starbucks not putting a picture of our risen Lord on its cups heralds the end of Christendom. The obligatory sign in front of town hall declaring the nativity scene has no religious meaning and is just a holiday display. It could be any first century Jewish family living in Palestine who had a baby in a shed surrounded by livestock. Don't read anything into it. Just last week, I pulled up to Wyckoff Avenue behind a car with a bumper sticker that read, Keep Christ in Christmas, which I didn't think much about until I noticed the picture above it was Santa Claus visiting baby Jesus in the manger, which gave me quite a bit to think about. But there is one symbol that we should stop and think about a little bit, which is the Christmas tree. Christmas trees, of course, really have nothing to do with Christmas. They are nowhere in the Bible. The closest thing scripture has to a Christmas tree are the cedars of Lebanon, mentioned about 90 times in the Hebrew Bible. Christmas trees, as we know them today, came from 17th century Germany, where the faithful would bring evergreen trees into their homes and decorate them with candles. Incidentally, 17th century Germany had a very high rate of house fires. So does the fact that scripture doesn't talk about Christmas trees mean we shouldn't have them? Well, of course not. Only the most cold-hearted Scrooges among us would say so. But what is interesting about Christmas trees is that when the prophet Isaiah wants to choose an image to represent the hope of God's redemption, he chooses not a towering pine, not a cedar of Lebanon, but a stump, the absence of a tree. Not exactly seasonal or festive, not impressive. No one goes to the nursery next door and says, you know, these Christmas trees are nice, but I'm looking for something more stump-like. So why is Isaiah so set on stumps? Because Isaiah and his contemporaries knew what it was like to be cut down, cut off, and leveled. Many of them believed that the Spirit of God had rested on the line of Jesse and his son, King David. And they thought as long as that dynasty existed, Israel could be a truly great nation. They would tower over the other nations of the earth. Other people would look to them for guidance and protection. But what happens? They get sacked by the Babylonians and the Assyrians. The tree gets cut down. The line, the monarchy, the dynasty comes to an end, and the tree becomes a stump. Incapable of growth, dead, lifeless, pointless. The disciples knew something about stumps, too. After all, what is the cross but a stump? The disciples thought that Jesus was going to usher in the kingdom of heaven, that God's new age was dawning through his life and ministry. But what happens? At the moment of Jesus' greatest promise, he's executed. You thought Jesus was going to change things? Well, now he's dead. Lifeless, pointless. 
And of course, we know something about stumps too. Parts of our lives where we expected something good and instead we get cut down to size. We don't call them stumps, of course. We call them layoffs and relapses, diagnoses and deportations, breakups and foreclosures. And what makes them so painful is the feeling of lost promise. Knowing that there was something here, some potential, that's never going to come back. Now it's gone, cut down, cut off, leveled. So why is Isaiah so into the stump? This dead, lifeless, pointless thing. Well, it turns out it's really not about the stump. It's about the shoot. It's about the sprig of green that comes off the side that is full of the Spirit of God. This thing that we thought was beyond redemption, that we thought was dead, turns out to have some possibility of new life. Where we thought there was only cause for despair, it turns out to be reason for hope. Isaiah tells us that God's redemption in the world isn't some overwhelming act where the heavens are torn in two. It isn't some towering pine that people can see from miles around. It's often something so seemingly insignificant that we don't notice it. We often lament that we don't think God is active in the world. Isaiah tells us oftentimes the problem is that we aren't looking closely enough. So Isaiah's gift to us is teaching us how to pay attention. A gift is something of a real challenge for us. Because paying attention, being present in the moment, focusing on what we're doing right now, is one of the hardest things for us to do. We get distracted by our anxiety about the future. We replay things that happened in the past again and again. We listen not to understand, but to exploit people's arguments. We look forward to things, and when they arrive, we're disappointed they're going to be over soon. Even when we're here, we're usually someplace else. Maybe you're like me and you've had that experience where you're making dinner and you think, I should write this person that email I've been meaning to write. And by the time my email is open, I think, do I have that thing on Saturday I'm supposed to be at? And so I go get my calendar. And as soon as my calendar is out, I think, who won the game last night? So I go to ESPN.com and 20 minutes later, I'm looking up home prices in my hometown that I don't want to move to. I'm always somewhere else. In our age of distraction, there's perhaps no greater gift we have to give other people than our attention. More important than our money, more important than our time, more important than anything we could scrounge up, attention. It's sort of funny that most of the people we would call holy, the people who make it possible to believe in God, aren't especially happy people. They aren't well-off, they aren't obnoxiously pious or even religious, and they're often not well-liked by the people around them. But they do have something in common, which is that they're very good at paying attention, at noticing things. When you talk to them, it's like you are the only person in the world that matters to them right now, that there is nowhere else they'd rather be. It's like they're deeply in tune, not with the markets or the culture or the politics of the day, but with other people's hunger for recognition and affirmation. 
Spike from St. Matthew Trinity Lunchtime Ministry, who I think most of you know, has a certain ethic he operates by in the soup kitchen. If he's working on a task or something in the kitchen that needs his full attention and he cannot be interrupted while he's doing it, and a guest comes up to him to ask him a question or just talk about their day or just rant about whatever's on their mind, he leaves whatever he's doing and talks to the person. He never tells people to wait. This way of doing things, of course, is maddeningly inefficient. His whole day is just one interruption after the next, and he gets way less done. But he says he doesn't tell people to wait because they're told to wait everywhere else they go that day. He gives people food and clothing and toiletries, of course, but the most important thing he gives them is something they can't get anywhere else. Attention. When we learn to pay attention, when, like Isaiah, we engage in that task of sussing out God's presence in the world, it has a revolutionary effect on how we view the people in the world around us. Instead of spending all our time and energy pulling on dead stumps trying to bring them back to life, we can search out and protect the new creation that's breaking through underfoot and out of sight. This isn't to say that things go back to the way they were. As Isaiah's descendants knew, the nation eventually did come back from exile, but they never reclaimed their former greatness. The new king turns out to be nothing like King David. As the early church knew, Jesus triumphed over death, but things never went back to the way they were. The days of Jesus' public ministry, preaching, and teaching were over. Easter redeems Good Friday, but it doesn't undo it. And of course, we know something of that too. That when we try to repeat the past, when we try to make things go back to normal, we find there is no normal anymore. Isaiah reminds us that God brings us new life, never a return to the old life. It's a very strange sort of comfort. It's probably not what Isaiah's listeners wanted to hear. It's probably not what most of us want to hear either. But Advent is a strange sort of season, and God knows we live strange kinds of lives. We never really get over things, but somehow we get through them. The stump is dead, but somehow God brings forth new branches. The cross reveals the presence of death, and yet somehow becomes the tree of life. Pay attention. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Invite the assembly to stand as we join the church around the world, confessing our faith using the words of the Nicene. 